and turn to the Song of Solomon. Find Song of Solomon is in an interesting place. It's called the Song of Songs, and it follows the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote that's called Vanity of Vanities. Well, it talks about vanity of vanities, that all under the sun is vanity. Then we have the Song of Songs that's about our relationship with God that is anything but vanity. And uh, there's also uh, the book that comes after it. What's the next book after the Song of Songs? It's uh, the prophecy, uh, the prophecies of Isaiah and the other prophets warning the people about uh, going away from God and calling them to maintain that relationship with him as his people. So we're continuing our series in the Song of Solomon today. It's a delightful song. It really is what it says in the first verse, the Song of Songs, Song of All Songs, the preeminent song. It's like the Holy of Holies or the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Many of the fathers of the church, both before and after Christ, have described this book really itself as the Holy of Holies within the Bible. It speaks of the love that is shared between Christ and his church. Throughout the Bible, Christ speaks of himself as the husband and the church as his bride that he came to redeem and that he dearly loves as his bride. The bride speaks about, I mean, I'm sorry, the Bible speaks about faith, hope, and love, right? But what does it say is the greatest of these? Greatest of these is love. This is what, this is the preeminent thing that God brings us to. He doesn't just bring us to faith. That's important. It's how we connect with God. He doesn't just bring us hope about the future, but he brings us into a relationship of love with him. So this book is about that relationship with Christ and his people. Many modern preachers and commentators do not agree with the consensus of the church, both the Jews before Christ and Christians after, that regard this book as as, as a song about Christ or the Messiah and his relationship with us. But uh, many of the moderns regard this book as songs about a couple that gets married or a couple that uh, is already married or sometimes a couple that just loves each other. Uh, Some see it as a continuous story that progresses from chapter one through. Others see it as just a collection of, of different songs, love songs. Some of them have written, some of these commentators are, are biblical men who have written helpfully about marriage and relationships and have done a service to the church in showing, you know, things about marriage and that marriage ought to be celebrated. And of course, you can learn a lot about marriage from this book, but they do run into interpretive difficulties where you have the woman encouraging her friends to come and enjoy her husband's love. And where you have the man sometimes as a king with a palace and sometimes as a rustic shepherd that's out in the hot sun looking after sheep. And you have passages where the girl won't let him come in at, at night, come into the, uh, the house. And then he uh, goes off and then she runs after him through the middle of the night in the streets um, in Jerusalem. And then she uh, gets beaten up, beaten up by the watchmen of the city and things like that that are more the things of an allegory than they are of a historical account. The objection of some that it's not appropriate to see marital intimacy as an allegory for our relationship with Christ in his church cannot stand. That objection cannot stand. It cannot stand because this allegory is used repeatedly in scripture by the Lord. The Lord not only speaks of himself as our husband, 
but he speaks of us growing up and of us maturing so that we have reached what he refers to as the time of love. And then of our idolatry that we commit at that time as being adultery, which causes him to write a certificate of divorce, but then to take us back again. And then we have many children through with him as our husband. So if God uses marriage and marital intimacy as an allegory of our relationship with him in places where it's very clear that he is, we shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed to interpret the Song of Solomon that way. And we can still learn a lot about marriage too, because anytime we learn about Christ and his relationship with church, we learn important things about husbands and wives and how they're to live together. Marriage is patterned after our relationship with Christ, not the other way around. Our relationship with Christ isn't patterned. God didn't have marriage and then say, hey, I think I'll pattern my redemptive relationship with my people after marriage. No, marriage, his redemptive relationship with us was planned before the foundation of the world. It's the big thing. And then marriage was, when he created us and instituted marriage, it was to be a, a, a pattern of that. We're still in chapter one of this most holy book of book, um, this most holy song of songs. Last week, we looked at verses 12 through 14. What we saw in those verses ties in very much with what we're looking at today in verses 15 through 17, which will bring us to the end of chapter one. So let me review what we looked at last week. In verse 12, the bride refers to her husband as the king. She explains that when the king is sitting at his table and she is present, then something happens. There's a reaction from her. She says, spikenard comes forth from me, a fragrance, a a very expensive, precious fragrance from a very expensive uh, kind of a a perfume. It comes forth from her. She's, She's referring to her affections, like when she's at the table with the king and he's he, his conversation that is nourishing and enriching, his, his giving of uh, things for, for growth and nourishment, then there's this response from her. It's like a, a sweet smell that fills the whole room and it give, gives delight at his table where he brings, you see, when we think of this with Christ, where he brings his word to us, his provision at his table. He brings his promises, the testimony of his love. He tells us of his love for us, the declarations of what he has done for us, the plans that he has for us for the future. Like, you're my bride. This is, this is my house. This is how it's going to look in the future. He tells of our inheritance with him. It's, it's the reaction we have when his word and spirit is working in us. For example, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Spirit is working. When we hear the Word preached or we read the Word and God's Spirit is working, we have this response to it. When He leads us in singing of praise and we're singing the songs that He has given us, then our heart will will swell up when the Spirit is working in us. He blesses us in this way. It brings forth from us love and devotion to Him. It brings forth from us delight in Him. It is our precious spikenard that fills the whole room with its fragrance. You can see that sometimes if a woman loves a man and, you know, they're together in the same room, you can, if her love kind of fills the room, there's this presence of it. And this is the kind of thing that when we delight in the Lord, then it's like a fragrance that fills the room. And then in verses 13 and 14, we speak of our Lord's love for us as like 
the fragrances that, that we cherish. We speak of him that way as a church. Whether it's myrrh that was a very precious, uh, very, very expensive kind of uh, um, perfume, and it speaks of the special intimacy that we have with him, or if it's the henna blooms that were all over the place, but in the wilderness. They're very clear, very visible. They're for anyone to, to take, and yet they, they stand out so plainly as a, a place in the wilderness, an oasis in the wilderness. We, if we are true believers, delight in his love for its beauty, for its fragrance. So we pick up today with verse 15 where our Lord Jesus, seeing our ardent affection for him, speaks directly of how delighted he is with us, how fair and how beautiful we are, he says. Now, this makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We're going to look at some of that today. We respond to him here by telling him that he is the fair one, both he and the house that he has established with us as a spouse. This is, what we're, this is what we're going to look at today. So I'll read it to you, and then we'll look at it more closely. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 17, the Word of God. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. And there we'll end the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God for his wonderful word that, that speaks into our lives so effectively. Consider that as we look at these words in an overall way, that this, these words are a dialogue between Christ, the Son of God, and his bride, the true church. If you're a believer, that means that these words are his words to you, and your words, or our words, is its collective bride, to him. Many are not believers, so they don't have a relationship with Christ. This relationship of those who are speaking here belongs to those whose eyes he has opened, and whose ears he has unstopped, and whose hearts he has changed, so that they have come to him with their children, to their Savior, to be their Savior from their sin, and from their alienation from him. So, yes, he has caused them to see that they cannot save themselves and that they desperately need to be saved, that they are defiled and guilty before him, that they are defiant and detached, and they need him to deliver them. They understand from him that he is willing to save all those who come to him and that he calls everyone everywhere to come, repent of their sin, and come to him for salvation. They realize that he has given himself an offering for the forgiveness of sin and that he promises his Holy Spirit to change their lives, to transform them. Therefore, they believe. They put themselves in his hands and trust in him and he receives them as his bride. See, they, they, they simply put themselves in his hands. They cast themselves upon him to save them according to his promise. And he does. So he speaks of all of us who are trusting in him with our elect children as his bride. That's who his bride is all through the Bible. It is with us that he has established the relationship that we talk about in the Song of Songs. It is with us that he has this conversation in particular that we see that we just read in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 1. So my outline is very simple today. First, he tells us how fair we are. 
how truly lovely we are. Then we tell him how fair he is, how lovely he is. That's what fair means in this place. And finally, we admire our house, the house that we have with him, that he made with us when he married us. When, he took, when a man takes a woman and his wife, they have a house together. And we talk about that house and how we love that house. So, so let's get on with this. The first thing again, he tells us how fair or how truly lovely we are. Verse 15, it says, Behold, this is him speaking to the church. He says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. How strongly he expresses the delight that he has in our beauty. The word fair means lovely, sometimes translated beautiful, pleasant, delightful, charming, handsome. In fact, it's translated that way in the next verse when it describes him. It's actually the same word in the Hebrew, except it's a um, masculine form. But it's a word uh, that, that is translated fair here. Grammatically, Lloyd Carr says that the Hebrew particle here gives it intensive force. And so the RSV brings that out very well in its translation. It says that, he, that we are truly lovely. So that's the idea of this word. When he says you are fair, he's saying to you who believe in Christ that you are truly lovely in God's sight. Think of it. Jesus tells us that. Now, does that, you say, I don't feel so lovely. <laughs> does, that, does that make you question whether this is really our Lord talking about this? Maybe, maybe the people are right who say, hey, this is just about a marriage, like a husband speaking to his wife. But no, our Lord plainly says such things to us, like in other places. Take Isaiah 62, 5, where he says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He rejoices over, God rejoices the same way that a groom rejoices over his bride. In Ezekiel 16, he tells his church how he found us in our defilement and made us beautiful, extremely beautiful. Now, this is kind of a long passage, but listen to it carefully. I'll make a few comments as I go. Ezekiel 16, verse 6, it says, this is the Lord speaking. And he says, and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood. That, that means that struggling with death and defilement by the fall, right? They're struggling in their uncleanness. I saw you struggling in the, your blood. I said to you, in your blood, live. God came and he said, be alive, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in a field. So he changed us from death to life. And you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. It's a picture of him taking us as his bride. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you with water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, all the defilement, and I anointed you with oil. So that would speak of like the, um, the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. 
I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck. Remember how we saw that in Song of Solomon earlier, how it said, we will make ornaments for you. And I suggested that that was the Trinity that was in view there, uh, adorning us with jewelry. That was in 111. It goes on in Ezekiel here, verse 12. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Did you notice that? Exceedingly, you were exceedingly beautiful. That's what he says to his people. You were gorgeous. You were, you were fine. You were fair. He says, your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. So here, here you see it. God says such things about you, his people, that you're lovely, very lovely, very beautiful. Second Corinthians, now, now maybe someone says, well, that's in the Old Testament. Maybe it's just talking about their palaces and things like that. Well, it's obviously not. But let's go to a New Testament reference. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a whole new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You might think about Ephesians where it says that you who are dead, he made alive. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is remarkable. We were lost. We were defiled. We were reprehensible in his sight. But now, in his mercy, he has redeemed us. And now, what does he say about us? We're not defiled and in our blood, but we're beautiful in his sight. This is so unbelievable. He goes out of his way to make it clear that he really does think that we are very fair. We can see three ways that he emphasizes it. He begins this declaration of his delight in us with the word, Behold. Did you notice that? He said, Behold, you are fair. As if to say, just look at you. Like, you are, you are all defiled and unclean, and now look at you. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You're lovely. He wants us to think about the transformation Behold means look, you know, look at this. Look at what has been done. The second thing he does that emphasizes the point is to address us personally, calling us my love. He loves the whole church and he loves each one in the church. The word used here emphasizes, the Hebrew word behind that word love, emphasizes friendship. In other words, it's not just the kind of love that God has for us even though we're corrupt. This is the kind of love of delight that you have in someone that you find attractive or lovely in your sight. Before he redeemed us, yes, he loved us even in our defilement while we were yet sinners. But he certainly did not think we were he certainly did not think that we were beautiful the way he does now. Now his love is out of a husband who delights in the actual beauty of his bride. The third way he makes sure that we understand that he really does think we are lovely is by repeating the whole statement. Instead of just saying, behold, you are very beautiful, he says, behold, you are very beautiful, my love. Behold, you are very beautiful, or you're fair, um, very, very lovely. What a tremendous encouragement it is to us. That he, he, he's emphasizing this because it's a hard thing for us to, to believe. 
But if you really are one of those who make up his bride, you're quite aware that there's still plenty of sin in you. We talked about that before where the bride said, I am black, you know, I've, 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 I'm dark, I've, got, I, I've been out in the sun too long. You know that by his saving work on the cross applied to you, all your guilt and condemnation has been washed away. So you understand that I've been washed by Christ, I've been purified. But even so, you know that there's still a lot of remaining corruption. There's a lot in you that's not right. Like Paul, you say, who will deliver me from this body of death? You come short of the glory of God and you know it. So how can he come along and say, you are very lovely, you are very beautiful, when we don't find it so in ourselves? What does he, what does he see in you? Well, he tells us what he sees. He tells you that he see, what he sees in you at the end of verse 15. He says, you have dove's eyes. Now, what does that mean? You have dove's eyes. A dove, of course, is beautiful and gentle. And so it refers something of that. But I think there's something more here, something related to what we saw in verses 12 and 14. Remember I said it ties in with that. We express there how our affection for him, our spike nerd, fills the room when he's at his table, when we have table fellowship with him, when he nourishes us and counsels us, tells us of his love, of his plans in his father's house. We told him of how he is a bundle of myrrh that lies all night between our breasts. He's that to us. How he's like a cluster of henna blooms and from, the, from Injeti where there was an oasis in the wilderness. What he means by dove's eyes here is that we have eyes for him. We are kinda, we're infatuated with him. Eyes for him and not for another. In other words, we don't have eyes of adultery that look to other gods or other saviors. Paul the Apostle said that he betrothed those that believe through his ministry as a chaste virgin or a pure virgin, somebody that only had eyes for Christ. Dove's eyes then speaks of our fidelity to Christ, that he is our one and only, that we have forsaken our idols and we have eyes now only for Jesus Christ. Doves are known for that. It's a characteristic, particularly of doves, that they have only one mate for life. There's a few types of doves that don't, but most doves have a mate for life. Unless their mate dies, and then uh, they will have another mate, but not until the mate dies. And this shows in the dove's eyes, like they look toward their mate, They can only look, of course, straight ahead the way their eyes are. And so they turn their head to wherever they're they're looking. You know how birds, like pigeons are a kind of dove, and they they move move their head around when they look at things. You can tell kind of what they're looking at. So this is what he's speaking about is fidelity. Matthew Henry, John Gill, James Durham, George Burroughs, and many others note this characteristic of doves. But you know that even in our modern times, the eyes of dove, the dove's eyes is still used. I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary, and this is the definition for dove's eyes. It says, birds in general can't move their eyeballs like humans can. <clears throat> Thus, doves can only focus on one thing at a time. They would need to move the entire head to look another direction. 
Doves specifically have only one mate in their lives. Therefore, having doves' eyes means one lover is focused on their significant other, thus not having, not even having the ability nor interest to look at another in such loving, in, in such loving romantic manner. Doves, doves are also peaceful and gentle birds, thus connoting the eyes are also soft and beautiful. So the example is used that. You might say to a fellow that has interest in a, a young woman, you might, he might be told, you know, forget about her. She has dove's eyes for Tom. So in other words, she's not going to look at you like she is taken up with Tom. She's only looking at Tom. She's not going to look at you. Um, people can see when a woman has dove's eyes for a man. Now, when we're truly converted, then we're all done with looking to other lovers, we, we don't look to drunkenness for our solace. We don't look to malice as something that we, we want to do to, to get our vengeance out. Or we don't look to idols. We don't look to cursing. We don't look to sexual immorality and all, all such things. The opposite of dove's eyes are eyes of adultery. Eyes that are looking everywhere else but Christ. As George Burroughs says, The Spirit purifies our eyes so that our eyes have the expression of doves, not the haughty air of a devotee of fashion, nor the proud bearing of the soldier, nor the selfish cast of the miser. You can see a miser's eyes, you know, they're greedy eyes. Nor the fierce glare of malice, somebody that's angry, nor the ill-conceived vanity hungering and thirsting for admiration, but the eye bestiqued be speaking gentleness, purity, and love is the expression of countenance agreeable to the Lord. Yes, we, we struggle with temptation, certainly as God's people, but we have a new heart that has eyes only for Christ and we turn back to Him and we look to Him. We have dove's eyes and He delights in that. And I tell you that dove's eyes are especially what He delights in. In the beginning... I mentioned this when we read John 1. We were created in God's image. And a big part of that, being in God's image, involved that we were devoted to God in whose image we were made. In other words, we looked to the one with delight who, in whose image we were made. We, we read that in the first chapter of John where we saw that Jesus is the Word. It explains there that the Word was with God So he was one of the persons of the Trinity that the word was God. So he's fully God and yet a person that was with God. And it tells us that all things were made by him. It also tells us that although he was God, he, the word, though God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was God in flesh. So he was the perfect image of God in human flesh. You want to know what God looks like if he's a human being? He's Jesus Christ. That's what he became. He was what we were all created to be, human beings in the image of God. But John tells us that we did not, as we saw, even recognize him, our own creator, when he came in our flesh. We should have immediately known him, because he's the pattern after which we were made in the beginning. Uh, we, We were so deep in our sin, though, that that we didn't see the one who is all that we ought to have been. 
He was our creator appearing in our flesh, and we didn't even recognize him as such. We did not receive him, but we rejected him. There's something wrong with us that we couldn't recognize. We should have immediately done so. Even the people that he came to, whom God had called out of the world to bring him into the world, the ones appointed to to bring forth the Messiah, that promises were made, the ones that God prepared to receive him and through the prophets and everything, John says he came to his own and his own received him not. They did not know him. He gives us, he's, he gives us the right to become children of God. He transforms us so that we do receive him, so that we see that he is what we were created to be, and then we're broken. Because we look at him when he gives us new eyes, and we see that we're not that. Like, we're ruined. We're convict- Whenever Jesus comes around, he's the light, and our sin is exposed all over the place. That's why people hated him. But you see, it says some people, he gives them the new birth so that they come to him. John 1, 11 and 12, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So we turn to him, as I mentioned before, and give ourselves to him to be saved. We say, Lord, I can't fix myself up. I can't change. I'm ruined. I see you. I see what I'm supposed to be. I look at me. I'm not that. You have to save me. Have mercy on me, Lord. Deliver me. Give me a new heart. Change me. We see that he himself is God the Son and that he came to seek and save that which is lost. He came to bring grace to us and help to us, in other words, and to bring truth to us because we were living in the darkness. We didn't know our God. So then what happens when he does that? When he changes our heart like that, when we're born again, we have dove's eyes for him. We're drawn to him. We're attracted to him. We don't want anything else. This is, this is what it's all about. This is what I was supposed to be all along. So we come to him. We don't come to him perfectly so with those dove's eyes, but we have the beginning of that, the seed of true devotion to him, that love for him that will never perish. The essence of our restoration to God is that we're restored, we're reconciled to God. He pardons us and he gives us a new heart. It's not just about being forgiven so that you won't be punished. It's about being forgiven so that you can have a relationship with him. Yes, it's about faith, believing for salvation and righteousness, but then it's about coming and being reconciled and living as his people. He imputes his righteousness to us and he changes us so that we trust in him and we follow him and love him. We have dove's eyes and those dove's eyes are beautiful to him. They are there. They will remain forever and they will be perfected at last. And so will we, you see. We will be will be completely in Christ. Now, after Jesus expressed his delight in us, we express our delight in him. That's the second thing we want to look at. We tell him how fair he is. Verse 16 says, Behold, you're handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. See, she's echoing his words back to him, right? The words, behold, you are handsome, my beloved, are nearly identical to the words that he spoke to us. She even begins with the word, behold, like he does. No, you know, look at you. Look at you. Look at who you are. You're the one who is beautiful. You're the one who's lovely. 
The word handsome, as I mentioned before, is the same word except the masculine that's translated by the word fair. This word is used of him in uh, Psalm 45 when it says he's fairer than the sons of men. That uh, Rob McCurley said about that, that fairer than any one of them and fairer than all of them combined. That's what it means when it says fairer than the sons of men. Fairer than any one of them and fairer than all of them combined. That's this one who is our groom. The word my beloved is a completely different word than he uses of her when he calls her my love. Of course, it's similar in meaning. It has translates into the word love. But I mentioned that the word love that he uses when he says my love is a word that refers to a friend or a companion that you find delight in. Well, her word that she uses of him, my beloved, is usually translated with the word beloved. But interestingly, it's also fairly often translated with the word uncle. So it has more of a note of love for someone who looks after you and who kind of has authority over you and cares about you. Often it's used of the Lord even here in the Song of Solomon. It's you, he's called the beloved all through this song. It's used of Christ, but it's not used of his bride. It's not used the other way around because, you know, he would be like an uncle to her, but she wouldn't be to him, um, an uncle or an aunt. So you see that she is, or we are, echoing his own words back to him here. He said this about us, now we say it to, about him. Now you who know Christ understand why you would want to do that. If he comes to us and he says, you're so lovely, you're so beautiful. And we're kind of like, no, I'm not, not really, you know. It's, it is something uncomfortable about him telling us we like it, but it's uncomfortable. And I think the idea is here, the idea here is that we're saying back to him, but no, you, you are the lovely one. Not me, you are the lovely one. Behold, it is you who are lovely. He said, behold, you are lovely. He said, behold, you are lovely. It's like we're having a, a, a quarrel with him. Uh, some of the commentators mentioned that they're trying to outdo each other. It's kind of like a banter going on here. You're the original one and I am only the copy. You are the logos. You are the word made flesh. You are the pattern. You are the image. I, or, or you are the pattern and I am the image. I have no goodness, we say, apart from you. All of my goodness comes from you. And the dove's eyes. Well, there's nothing commendable about that. My eyes are fixed upon you because of your loveliness. That's like commending someone that, you know, there's a beautiful sunset. You go, oh, that's a beautiful sunset. And you go, wow, you have marvelous eyes to be able to perceive that, that sunset. And it's like, what? No, no, I'm looking at the sunset, you know. It's a beautiful sunset. It's not my eyes. It's just, the dove's eyes are there because of who he is, because of our delight in him. We say, we're saying to him, I have dove's eyes because of your beauty and perfection that, that I see now. Um, and indeed, what beauty we see in Jesus, our husband. I mean, before we were utterly blind, right? He came into the world and we didn't even know who he was. His own people didn't even receive him. But then when we're born again, our eyes are open and we have dove's eyes now. And indeed, what beauty we do see in Jesus, our husband. First, even that he should be our husband at all. That, that he should love us is remarkable. I mean, we, we saw it in Ezekiel. We were defiled and ruined by sin. We were an abomination in his eyes. We had rejected him. We had rejected his father as our creator and lawgiver. We were living in defiance of him. We were ugly, ugly, ugly. 
dead in our sins. And yet he came to marry us anyway, to take us with, to take us with all our filth and with all of our debt from sin and to make us fitted for God's house. Truly a work that only he could do. How could he pick us up from the garbage bin like that and make us into his bride? Yet he has done it. He has atoned for our sin with his own blood to cover our sin. He has procured a righteous standing for us. We're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He came among us as one of us that he might represent us before the Father. He goes out ahead of us and he does all that the Father receives. He has drawn us by his powerful word and spirit who has opened our eyes like we've talked about so that we see what we couldn't see before. The truth has caused us to be born again so that, so that we come to him. We, come, we realize, I can't save myself. I've got I've, I've to come to this one. He, he alone can save me. He's our champion. He's the one who loved us when we did not love him, who rescued us when we were helpless, the one who delivered us when we did not deserve to be delivered. How lovely he is. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the best of them all. How pleasant he is. Indeed, do you not see excellence in our Lord Jesus Christ, in everything about him, in all that he does? He was beautiful as our creator. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're wisely made. We're given a world full of excellent things that speak of his goodness. He was beautiful as our redeemer after we fell, immediately making promises to us through his prophets, showing us his salvation through the priests and ordinances that he appointed, showing us our need of him, showing us his power to deliver us from all who would oppose our service to God and our coming to God. He was beautiful in coming to the earth in human flesh, beautiful in leaving the glory of heaven that he might come here in lowliness to represent us and live among us. We saw that we were created to be in him, his, his image in human flesh, for he was the son of God in human flesh, the word made flesh. He was beautiful dwelling among us. What did he do? He went about everywhere doing good. He went about blessing people, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, cleansing the lepers. He was beautiful as the one who had grace poured out on his lips so that it was said of him that no one ever spoke like this man spoke. He was beautiful as he set his face to go toward Jerusalem, determined that he was going to go and do what was required to die for our sins. He was beautiful when he instituted the Lord's Supper to comfort us. He was beautiful when he poured out ardent prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading that if it be possible, the cup would pass from him, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was beautiful before his enemies always, but especially before his enemies when he was arrested and crucified and he maintained such poise through the whole thing. He was beautiful when he was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. When he was suffering for our sins, when he forgave the thief on the cross, when he cried out for deliverance for our sake from the Father who received his sacrifice and when he was heard. He was beautiful in his death. He was beautiful in his resurrection. Beautiful in the 40 days that he instructed his disciples. Beautiful when he blessed them and sent them out into the world to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. That was his plan. Beautiful when he ascended into heaven. 
Beautiful when he poured out his spirit on his church. Beautiful when he gathers the nations to himself that were lost, that they might be saved. When he rules over all things for the sake of his church to bring about his purposes. Beautiful as he cares for us, as he intercedes from us at the right hand of the Father that we might always be pardoned. Beautiful as he sanctifies and comforts us all through our life. And how beautiful he will be when he comes in glory at the last day with all the holy angels with him and gathers his church and drives Satan off to the lake of fire with all of his enemies. I tell you, there is no one like him. He is the fairest of 10,000. Our testimony is, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. The law came by Moses. What does that mean? Moses told us what God requires of us as sinners in order that we might be reconciled to God. What is required of us for righteousness and salvation. That's all Moses could do. He said, this is what's required of you. But grace and truth, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh. He fulfilled what God required. Moses didn't do that. He just told us what was required. Christ came and fulfilled all that was required for sinners to come to God and be saved. He is a husband beyond all comparison. The reason that we are lovely is because Christ is our Redeemer. It's because of our husband who has loved us and taken us to be his own. How happy we are to be in his house and to be part of his house as his people. And that's our third point. We admire our house, the house that he has made with us as his bride. At the end of verse 16 and on through verse 17, we say, Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. Notice, first of all, how we speak of it as our bed, our beams, our houses, our rafters. As our husband, he has brought us into his house and he has made us joint heirs with him so that what is his has become ours. God has had one house, but also different houses. He had in the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle and then he had the temple. And now in Jesus Christ, it's a house made without hands. This is amazing because of God's son, he is the heir of all things and we're part of his house. When we fell, our dominion over the whole creation was diminished so that the creation doesn't obey us anymore. It rebels against us. We're subject to storms and famines and coronaviruses and all kinds of plagues, hardship, shortages. And last but not least, we're subject to death. But in Christ, all is restored to us. Even death is swallowed up with victory. He overcomes the grave. He takes dominion where we had lost dominion. That's his house. It's a house where dominion is restored again to God's people and everything is put right. However, even more than that, he is the heir of all nations. All of the nations will at last serve him. Those within them who do not serve him will be cast into the lake of fire. But those who serve him will all be gathered together as one and we will serve him. Every tribe and tongue and people will serve him and call on his name. Then the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord forever. So this house 
is a house of living stones, a house that grows and matures. Let's look at what it says about it, what we say about it. That the bed, our bed is green. That is, it is verdant. We were created to bring forth beautiful image bearers of God. See, we were made in God's image and we were created so that we could reproduce after our kind and we could bring forth people who are also image bearers of God, those who are like the word made flesh. Our calling was to fill the earth with people that were the beautiful image of God. But when we fell, we became barren. We could no longer bring forth such children. We could not bring forth one son or one daughter that would be what God wanted. So God sent his own son by miraculous power. What we could not do, he did. Indeed, his son, born of our flesh, but born of the woman. We were not capable of bringing forth a son like this. So God sent his son from heaven to become flesh and to dwell among us. Yes, when it says to dwell with us, the word there is to tent with us, to tabernacle among us. It refers to the tabernacle. The house of God is Jesus Christ dwelling with his people as the foundation stone, the apostles and prophets as part of the foundation, and then we're built on him as the chief, on Christ as the cornerstone. The one who is subject to temptation but did not sin, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. We were not capable of bringing forth one like that. And now that he has come, the words of Isaiah 54, 1 through 5 are fulfilled, which talk about the green bed. It says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, never brought forth any children for God. Break forth into singing, cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. You've got to get a bigger house. And let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. They'll be inhabited, in other words, with godly people is the idea. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood any more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. As the Lamb's wife, we who would otherwise be barren and unable to bring forth children for God are now able to do so through our relationship with Christ, our husband, the word made flesh. He has made us fruitful. And in his house, we have a green bed. We bring them forth both by conceiving offspring and we bring that we bring up in his covenant and by evangelism, where we call those who are outside to come into his house in faith. The bed we share with Jesus is green. It is alive. It is fruitful. And then we speak of the lasting beauty of our house that our husband establishes with us. We say, The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. Now, I'm just going to tell you the word rafters and the word fir here are very rare words and they're very uncertain. So when they translate it that way, they're just guessing. And I'm not really going to worry about that because the whole thing is clear here. It's probably it's a reasonable translation. Um, Cedar, though, is very is clear 
translation, cedar is very prized for house building because of its beauty coupled with its durability. The house that we have with Jesus, the point here is it's lasting and it's beautiful and it's strong. It will never perish. Not even death will destroy the church of Jesus Christ. It is living and growing. It is expanding and it is ever maturing. In the history of the world, there are times when the Lord himself seems like he's destroying his own house. He even says that he is when he's bringing judgment upon his own house. But whenever he does that, he's actually preserving the elect. Remember we saw that in the last six chapters of Isaiah. He's actually preserving his people. The fact is, nothing can destroy his house ever because he's promised that nothing can. It's, it's, it's sort of like, his house is sort of like wheat where you have a bunch of, you have the stalk and you have all the chaff and stuff in the wheat. You break it apart and you get the grain out that you eat and you keep and the rest of the stuff is, is blown away. Well, the church has a whole structure and much of it, like the chief priests and the Pharisees that crucified Jesus, they're not, they're not really elect people. But the elect are within that, that, that house and they're the ones when God brings great judging, judgment upon his church, they're the ones that are broken loose and that come forth in purity to serve him. So not one of his seeds will perish, even though Satan tries his best to destroy them all. There's security. It's a house of cedar. It's a house that is lasting, that's strong, that's durable. Yes, we delight in our bed of green and in our house with its beams of cedar and its rafters of fir. It's a beautiful house and it will always stand. We're very happy in our husband's house. It's filled with precious people who are very lovely in our husband's eyes. It is a house of perfect love in which he delights and in which we growingly delight. He is our husband. He has built it for us. He is our husband and he is fairer than all the sons of men. We have dove's eyes for him. Indeed we should and indeed we do when we are born again. Please stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful things that are set forth to us in the Song of Solomon. We thank you how it tells us about the relationship that we have with Christ as his bride, as the elect people who are his bride. We pray, O Lord, that we would cherish the things that we have from Christ, for they are freely given to us. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have because of this house that will abide forever, that though the house often is is shaken and seems like it's even being destroyed, that you always bring it forth with greater purity than it was before, like gold in the refiner's fire. We praise you, Lord, that you are at work and that you will never forsake your own people. We pray that you would give us courage and boldness that we might serve you and that we might call on your name. Father, thank you for the the way that you have changed us, where we were completely ruined and in our blood we were lost and defiled, and yet you came to us and you washed us you took us as your own, and now we're able to, to be your people forever, Lord. We thank you for the tremendous hope that that gives to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would cherish our relationship with you and that we would see that, indeed, Christ is the fairest of 10,000, that you would give us dove's eyes for him, for he is worthy. 
Help us, Lord, to see him as he is and to delight in him as we ought. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. You know what? One of the keys to coming to the Lord's Supper in the right way is mutual delight. Mutual delight is the key to coming to the Lord's Supper for a blessing. It is imperative that we delight in Christ and that He delight in us if we're to receive blessing and encouragement at this table. Paul warns us about coming to the table in the wrong way. We must come to the table as true believers. Those who, as I mentioned in the sermon, have cast ourselves upon Jesus for our justification, for forgiveness and righteousness by him, and cast ourselves upon him for the new life that he gives by the working of his spirit, initially the new birth, and then progressively growth growth in our sanctification, and then in hope, in future perfection and glory. The foundation of our confidence is what is presented to us at the table with the symbols of bread and wine. Representing our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God is the one who saves us by his sacrifice that he offered on the cross. The bread represents his body that was broken and is distributed to us, and the wine represents his blood that was shed for our forgiveness. By eating, we show that we're depending on him and his sacrifice to make us righteous and to give us new life. Listen to the words of institution that the Lord gave to Paul to give to us and record for us in the scripture. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now you can see that some of the Christians at Corinth didn't get along very well at the Lord's table, did they? It didn't go well for them. Some of them were sick, some of them were dead because they had come in an unworthy manner. Jesus did not delight in them, you see, because they did not have dove's eyes. They were not looking to him for salvation. They did not delight in him as their savior. They came, in fact, without even thinking about what he had done for them when they were at the very table of the Lord, without rejoicing and trusting in him. They were not paying attention. They were thinking about their own interests instead of about their Savior. They did not have dove's eyes for him. You should not come if you are not yourself trusting in him, nor should you come if you have never professed him or or have not yet joined the church if you're covenant child, then you receive blessing from the Lord through connection that your parents have, and and you receive a great blessing from him in that way. 
nor should you come if you have no love for him or delight in him as your Savior. Yes, come delighting in him, you see, as the Savior that he is. That's the right way to come. That he is the fairest one of all. That he is the word made flesh. That he is the logos. That he is the pattern. The perfect image of God. Full of grace and truth that he brought to to us. In order that we might be saved. In order that we might be righteous. Moses just told us what was required. He did what was required. But note well, I did not say, don't come unless you have all the love and delight that you ought to have for him. If that were the case, then no one of us could come. I said, if you have no love for him or delight in him as your savior, if your faith and your love are weak, then, and you're sorry about that, then you have all the more reason to come. We come to the table to be strengthened. We come looking to him as the one who redeems us. We come looking for help because of the wonderful Savior that he is. He's full of grace for us. He's full of truth. And he will help you if you come looking to him. So let's pray and ask him to to indeed meet with us here and to bless us with what we need. Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, how we praise you that you have made yourself, O Christ, an offering for our sins. That you came with grace and truth Moses told us the law, but you came with grace and truth to fulfill what the law required. You came to be that offering that Moses told us was required. You came to be that priest that Moses told us was required to offer that offering. You, told, you came to be the king that Moses spoke of who would lead the people in the way of God in righteousness. You came to be the prophet that would tell us of the way to God that would lead us in that way and would guide us and that would the, also the king that would destroy all of our enemies. And we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are all of this to us. And we recognize that the way that you became all of this to us was that you actually had to go and bear our sins on the cross. You had to become flesh and then you had to go to the cross. You are, O oh Lord, the fairest husband of all. You're the fairest of 10,000. You're the one who is lovely, altogether lovely. You're beautiful in all of your ways. And we praise you, Lord, that there is no one like you. There is no one who even comes close to comparing to you. What a beautiful creation was yours, O oh Lord, that making a people, a whole, a whole world that, of people that were made in your image, that were like Jesus Christ is. And now, O oh Lord, by Christ, you are restoring that world again. You have called us out from the darkness to be your people, to be renewed by your grace and power, to be forgiven and to be cleansed by Jesus Christ, to have a new record that's credited to us, the record that Christ has, the new creation, the firstborn. We come, O oh Lord, in his name, rejoicing and what you have done for us on the cross, the acceptance that we have in him. Oh Lord, you have made us beautiful. You have made us lovely again. We only have the beginnings of that life, Lord, but it is a significant change so that you have told us that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Lord, we lament the body of death and the sin that remains in us, but we praise you, Lord, for the new life that is there, that though we are dark, we're also lovely. 
And we pray, Lord, that we would come to you with confidence in your work, not in our work. Our works will land us, land us in hell. But your work, O oh Lord, your saving work, your grace, your provision, O oh Lord, you are the truth. We praise you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ. So, Lord, meet us here. Bless us as we come to this table looking for the blessing that comes from Christ crucified. We don't have eyes to look anywhere else, Lord. I don't know another place where we can find anything like this blessing, anything that is even worthwhile. Father, here in Christ, we have everything that we need. We have a beautiful house that we have been brought into where we can live forever and ever as your people, as your bride, a house where there is love and where there is righteousness and where there is truth and where there is a mutual delight between the husband Christ and all of us, the bride, his church. Oh, Father, make these things rich to us, Lord. Make them the delight and the desire of our eyes. For we pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of revelation, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Amen.